This is the Monday, April 10th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine visits the era of silent film stars. Those dashing actors and stunning actresses who broke hearts in black and white without ever having to say a word. Our guest on this journey is Lainey Giles, author of The It Girl and Me, a novel of Clara Bow. Now, what is it? Well... For almost 100 years, people have been trying to answer that. It's not just sex appeal. That's kind of like calling pizza just delicious. It's more than that. It's something cultural. It's something you feel and know if you have it. Our narrator is Daisy DeVoe. She was a real person, and she was very close to Clara. But she grew up far away from the glamour that would become Hollywood. She was a bootlegger's daughter from a poor corner of Kentucky. And she clawed her way up the ladder at Paramount Pictures to find herself styling hair for actresses like Clara. Clara was the jazz age it girl. And she didn't have an easy ride either. From tenements in Brooklyn, one after another where she moved around, an unstable mother, and a father who was drunk and hitting on starlets most of the time, Clara's smiling, beaming face on the screen just wasn't the person that she was inside. But boy, could she act like she was happy. She could dance like she didn't have a care in the world, and people really, really loved her. There's no actress today that compares, and a novel is a great way to get to know her. It makes the story all the more compelling because it's based on a real history, on characters who, like Clara on that silver screen, enchant those of us in the balcony, and we can forget that they are real people with real struggles, good times and bad. And Clara sure had a lot of good times, but she had trouble too, and that makes for a great novel. Lainey's previous novels have started her on this path to what's become the Forgotten Actress series. The first one was Love Lies Bleeding, and the one she joined us to chat about last time was called The Forgotten Flapper, a novel of Olive Thomas. You can find our interview in the archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening. And you can also follow our guest on Twitter at Forgotten Flapper. That's the digit four, Gotten Flapper. Or at her website, LaineyGiles.com. That's L-A-I-N-I-G-I-L-E-S. Okay, now that we've filled up our silver hip flasks with a little bathtub gin, head on down to our local speakeasy and slug back a few belts with The It Girl and Me.
I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Lainey Giles, who's joining us via Skype from the Big E, Edmonton, Canada. She's the author of The It Girl and Me, a novel of Clara Bow. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Nice to be back, Dean. As you can tell, I'm excited. Being from the New York area, you have to remind yourself not to talk too fast, especially when you're excited. I am excited about this book. I wanted to get my hands on the It Girl and Me ever since you told me you were writing another book about a silent film star. But I want to force myself to take a pause and recap a little bit the journey Olive Thomas took you on since we last spoke about that book. How has your success with The Forgotten Flapper led you to continue with this Forgotten Actress series, and what did you learn since you wrote that first one? I have been so pleasantly surprised by the reception that I've gotten for Ollie. Kind of validated how I felt about her, that so many other people loved reading about her as much as I loved writing about her. Because if you're not in the silent film community, half the people who read the book didn't know who she was. They did not know it was a real story when they first started reading it. So now they want to look up more about her and and read more books about her. So that's always a good thing, I think. I think the book has sold now close to 11,000 copies in multiple formats. So the word of mouth has been a wonderful thing. And I've been able to feed those sales into investing in the next book, you know, the editing, the cover design, all of that. And I made a lot of friends in Hollywood and kind of around the globe, basically, who were helping me to spread the word. When I got done with the first book, I was grieving for Olive because I'd written her in first person. I'd been her for five years and I was like, you know, who should I write about next? And you say Flapper and Clara Bow was the obvious choice. And so that was kind of how I came to settle on that and then started creating the series concept. It's like, okay, well, who can I do after that? And then after that, and then after that. And so I have quite a few mapped out, not ready to go, but ready to either start work on them or continue working on them. (laughs) I was so hopeful there for a second that we would have book three coming in two months, but you're not that (laughs) (laughs) No, Stephen King can do that. I can't do that. Mine mine needs a little more research. (laughs) Yeah, well, and you also draw real characters here. You read six or seven Stephen King novels and you say, okay, everybody's a recovering alcoholic who gave up also cigarettes and now things are getting stressful. They're going to start drinking and smoking again. And this is a little heavy handed after the first few books, I think, when you crank them out this fast. Whereas for you here, you really get a sense that when you use Daisy's voice, it's not the same as it was for Olive Thomas. You are writing from a first-person point of view here. As with The Forgotten Flapper, we are seeing the It Girl and me through not the character of Clara Bow, but through a first-person point of view. Let's jump forward to that and tell people, how did you go about shifting that narrative voice between the two books so that when you put words in Daisy DeVoe's mouth, they don't come out in Ollie's voice? I really like writing in first person, so I had to kind of figure out how to go from the wisecracking showgirl to modifying a little bit. Now, Daisy's from the South, and I'm from the South, so I had a solid foundation of y'alls and fixin' twos and all of that from being Texan, but I had to tweak it a little bit to make it more kind of Kentuckiana than Lone Star. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I found some videos on YouTube of some people from Paducah. So I listened to them talking 
And there was also a, a recording of Bill Monroe on there. So he was playing his bluegrass, but then he would talk to the audience and he was telling funny stories and stuff here. And I was looking for things that I could throw into the dialogue that would make it, uh, you could actually hear the difference in the speech. And Daisy's tried losing her accent, but her parents are kind of simple country people. So I wanted that to come out when they talked and I wanted to kiss my husband. I mean, you know, more than usual. Uh, <laughs> Gee, how we, generous of you. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a good guy. I'll kiss him a little more than usual. Um, we were at a Goodwill in Dallas years ago, and we always, of course, gravitate to the books first, see what we can find. And he found this set of books called Mountain Spirits, and they were all about the history of bootlegging in America, kind of a practical guide for doing it and sort of a historical set piece of, of cool things about bootlegging. And at the time I was like, dude, why are we buying these? Are you starting a new venture in the backyard that you haven't told me about? <laughs> but holy moly, they were amazing for writing this book. When I started kind of looking into Daisy's background and found out that, you know, there had been bootlegging involved, I went, oh my God, those books. And I started looking through them and they were just amazing. I'm like, yes. <laughs> it's good to haul those books from place to place and wondering what you're ever going to use them for, right? And I'm so glad we held on to them. Who knew, right? Yeah. And you said silent film community, you used that phrase, and you'd mentioned that to me when we first talked. You said you mentioned the name Olive Thomas to silent film buffs, and they light up. And I wondered if you'd explain a little to people, what is that community? Because maybe people are picturing some really old fossilized ladies with big glasses and the holder for cigarettes. But this is young people, the people really of all ages. I see them on Twitter often that interact with you at Forgotten Flapper. These are people who just love these stars. You wouldn't think that with a medium that we really seem to have left so far behind. Yeah, I when I first got started with attempting to market the books, I'm like looking at the folks who are posting and I'd like look at their Facebook profiles and things like that. These are people that go to silent film festivals. There are people who go to uh, like the TCM festival who are in deep mourning today about Robert Osborne passing away. Yeah, sad. They're gay men, usually. A lot of older folks who were around when some of the movies initially came out, not silent movies necessarily, but some of the classics, and they are really into them because that's their youth. You know, those were things that were happening when they were younger that they value. And also girls who buy vintage are also very interested in this. And I have a couple of friends that belong to the Art Deco Society or the Louise Brooks Society, that sort of thing. And this to them is life. I mean, they, they dress it, they speak it, they watch it. <laughs> this is them. Yeah. And Governor's Island here in New York City, they had a big 20s festival there and it was just amazing. I had a friend who went and sent me so many pictures and even a big city like New York, you are amazed by how many people will go to something like that and get so into it. It's really great. And this book is a way to take them back, I joked with you that I read the headline and the little guy in my head who likes to play word games and generally annoy me, sometimes he manages to get a line out, speaking of writing lines for somebody else's voice, and he looks at the cover and sometimes he says, why did she write a book about a female computer program, the IT girl and me? And I say, no, it's not. It's the it girl. Stop it. There are some more sensible questions that you come up with. A person might pick it up and might not know anything about it, might just be drawn to that picture 
of Clara on the cover and see the same thing that moviegoers were seeing a hundred years ago about her. Just the brightness, the big eyes, the mischievous glint. It's amazing. All of that comes across without speaking a word in black and white. When you tell somebody on a bus or wherever it is and they say, well, a film star from 100 years ago who didn't speak. I know eventually she got into the talkies. But what do you tell them about why they should want to meet Clara Bow? She was this terrific firecracker of a figure up on the screen. She just kind of instinctually knew what to do with that exaggerated art of pantomime that silent film stars had to learn. She just got it when she laughed or cried or she gave you that kind of come on wink she was so alive and believable, and it was so natural for her that it wasn't really acting at all. That's her you're seeing. And it's such a contrast to her real life. Her early life was a nightmare. The poverty and the brutality of growing up in the Brooklyn slums, you really have to admire how she pulled herself out of that that nightmare of her youth. This was really a book that did what great historical fiction should do. And that's, it made you want to learn more about her. Speaking for myself, I wanted to go and watch some documentaries on her. You mentioned Robert Osborne. I wanted to see some of his commentaries, maybe on her later talking films, where, by the way, speaking about the silent films and that transition, she said, you couldn't be as cute anymore once they were recording you. You couldn't be that over-the-top dancing. And, and she felt that really limited her. But things like that, I want to talk with you about. We talked about it over email. And that's what this book does. You meet her once and you say, gosh, I want to devour it. And she seems so alive in your book that it's sad when you're watching those movies to think she's not going to be coming out with a new film next month. This is somebody who's passed away a long time ago. But I didn't want to make this as if you wrote a biography of her. You certainly didn't. This interview is about her, but through the vision of somebody else. So I wonder why this time you did choose that to tell her story through somebody standing just on the outside of her aura, who's in the inner circle, but isn't the star of the show. When I first started trying to write, the more that I read about Clara, she wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> and, you know, of course, Growing up in Brooklyn in the slums, she had kind of a limited education. So I needed to have someone tell the story who was sort of a non-biased observer, I guess. And when I started looking at trying to do that, Daisy seemed like the obvious choice because she was close enough that she could tell the story and she could comment on Clara's behavior because at the time, Clara was pretty outrageous for the time and she I needed to have somebody say hey yeah <laughs> cool it you know <laughs> <laughs> and so that seemed to be a good way to tell the story and then when I found out as I researched a bit more you know looking at old census records and things like that and then I found out about Daisy's dad being a bootlegger and then I found out hey I can order his prison record from San Quentin from the <laughs> California archives in Sacramento. Oh my God. That was like being handed a Christmas present with a big red <laughs> bow on it. You know, <laughs> like, Oh yeah, yeah this is going to be awesome. So yeah. <laughs> got, got some backstory of her. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Cause otherwise you, 
would maybe have a real hard time, a real challenge writing about somebody who's not reflective at all. It seems like Clara Bow was just out there and she wasn't somebody who sat around and thought, oh, did I say the wrong thing? It's pure action. When you see her on the screen or you're kind of with Daisy here, you could feel Daisy almost getting out of breath sometimes just trying to keep up with Clara Bow. <laughs> it, it would be hard to write her inner monologue because everything she does and is feeling, it's up there and she's saying it, which is incredible since a lot of the time she's saying it in films where she never speaks a word. It's just music and title cards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Speaking of Daisy's voice a little bit and that Kentucky upbringing, I devour your slang always like a thirsty man sucking down a can of moxie. That's sort of a 20s era there. But you have a light touch on those, unlike the heavy-handed, you know, jamming in moxie there that I just did. So in my opinion, when I read it and Daisy says something like she and Clara got along like bees and blossoms, it seems very natural. I don't feel as if, oh, okay, this author picked up a book of 1920s slang and is going to use every single one of them right in quick succession as quick as she can. And that's not how people usually talk. We don't do that today, even with the slang that we have. Sometimes you just say a line, but just the right amount can add really perfect flavor to it. Just like when you're cooking, right? A little bit of basil. Yeah. You don't pour the whole thing in there. So Yay, my evil plan is working. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask, where do those expressions come from? You mentioned a couple of sources, but how do you work that muscle? How do you taste the broth there and realize when it tastes just right and resist that urge that all authors have, all people like us who love it, to say, maybe I'll put off talking about that great piece of slang when I talk to the History Author Show or in an interview somewhere else, but it just doesn't fit right here in the book. It's distracting. Well, yeah, I love that era for slang. And I'm like a sponge for soaking it up from sources all around me. I watch older period movies. I watch new movies about that period and TV shows about that period. I read a lot of old newspapers, which are a gold mine, and old magazines, old movie magazines. I listen to old music. I have a 1920s playlist that I listen to when I write. And there's this terrific album that I found years ago called Red Hot Chicago that has folks on it like Cliff Ukulele Ike Edwards and Annette Hanshaw. And I adore it. Plus, I've got like three seasons of Boardwalk Empire soundtracks. And I make note of lyrics and funny expressions that I come across in my reading are from an old movie. And sometimes I customize them a little. I mentioned my Castle Slang Dictionary. So yes, I actually do have a book <laughs> that I use for that. It's definitely a tool of the trade. You know, you do need to know if you want to use an expression, was it around yet? That's just mostly for keeping me accurate. And if you ever saw that movie, Say Anything, years ago, mm -hmm. where John Cusack picks up Ione Skye's just massive dictionary, and she says, oh, yeah, I used to have this thing when I was young with, with marking all the words that I looked up, and he starts flipping through it, and just about all the words are marked. <laughs> right, that's, yeah. That's kind of what I do, and I code them. So if it's more just general 20s, I put one symbol next to it. If it's more kind of British 20s, then I put a different symbol. If it's more sort of African-American, then I put another symbol next to it. If it's drug slang, it gets a different code. And so that's kind of how, plus I also brainstorm lists of things. If I need to have, you know, I have a lot of blanks 
when I write, just so that I can keep myself sort of in a momentum and go faster. And uh, let's say I need an expression for a guy who's like, you know, big as a bear. So I throw whatever cliche is in there, but then think, okay, what are some really big things? So I start just brainstorming, making lists of really big things. And if I can find one that sounds a little bit quirky, a little bit different, you know, if it, alliteration is, is involved, that always makes it sound a little bit better. But there's just, there's something about that period and the slang that they use. It's one of the songs that I came across is, well, you wouldn't call a man a two-timing man if he just two-timed one time. I mean, that's poetry. <laughs> and, you know, as long as the reader seems like the fact that I'm using just enough and not too much. Some people, I think, did in the first book. They said, oh, yeah, she's got all these cliches. Or not cliches, but uh, they were trying to say metaphor, but they used the wrong word. I don't remember exactly what they said. But she said, oh, she's just got all these expressions that are, you know, and I'm like, well, okay, you know, one person out of a hundred something that I can handle. So yeah. if everybody else likes it, then I'm good. <laughs> it's tough because sometimes you look at things and you say, they can become caricatures, even if they really did talk like that in the era. And you'd say, well, everybody says that sort of thing, you know, hey, chicky or whatever it is from that era, whatever it is that people pick up on. And you say, well, that's really is how they talked. And yet you might not want to put that in. And I'm fascinated by that mechanics of how you develop that muscle. Writing can be so solitary. By definition, it's solitary because you're just sitting there writing it. So when you have to choose what you're going to put in and keep yourself entertained and interested and motivated. I just think that comes across so clearly in your writing because you don't read a lot of novels like this. I don't know another novel that sucks you so much into this specific period. It brings you into the makeup room there in a Hollywood studio in the 20s. How else can you go there and yet not spend a lot of time just looking around at stuff? It's everything really is made to justify itself. I read that once where they say, put every word on trial that's going to be in your book. And I felt that you really did that. I hope people, if they pick up the It Girl and Me, will get the same thing out of it because you did your homework. You did real hard work in there. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> and by the way, I was thinking with John Cusack and Say Anything, that's a silent film. I wonder how they would have worked that holding up the boombox. You know, <laughs> I guess, he, first of all, it wouldn't have been a boombox. I guess it would have to be a big phonograph, but there'd be no. <laughs> <laughs> with the big horns sticking yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> Every day, music coming out of it, they would have to go to title cards again and again. It would have been a little bit difficult. But anyway, not <laughs> also the father there was in prison so who knows maybe they could have made that very similar movie but <laughs> that's right i hadn't yeah. thought about that you turned the clock forward a little bit here between the forgotten flapper and the it girl and me i wondered if you already had the jazz age period so down that you were free to dig into the lives of clara and daisy with more detail or to put it another way how close was this book to starting from scratch compared to the forgotten flapper it actually is way easier to keep going in the 1920s vein, for sure. I, I didn't have to start from scratch, and that was a good thing. For each one of these novels, I can start it, you know, keep in the 1920s vein, but then I have to laser focus on bits of detailed research. Like for all of it was Pennsylvania, Ziegfeld, the Follies, the Pickfords, Paris, New York, and Olive. With this one, it was Clara. Uh, learning about Brooklyn, bootlegging, San Quentin, and this trial, which 
takes up a huge chunk of the book. So for each one, I have certain areas that I had to concentrate on, even though it was Hollywood in the 20s, sort of as the common thread. And I actually do have one actress that I really want to write about, but she's more of an Edwardian stage actress. So right now, that would just be too much of a seismic shift in my thought process to try to change focus right now. So I'm going to ride this wave of 20s gals, I think a little while longer, just to to keep myself sane, basically. (laughs) Before you kind of switch teams, you're going to keep your talents here. You're not going to take your talents to the Edwardians. Not quite yet, but this this one's a humdinger. So I, I can't wait to really be able to get started on it and start doing something with it. So my guest sharing her talents with us today is Lainey Giles, author of The It Girl and Me, a novel of Clara Bow. You can follow her on Twitter at Forgotten Flapper. That's the digit four, Gotten Flapper. Or at her website, LaineyGiles.com. That's L-A-I-N-I-G-I-L-E-S. And because I was lucky enough to know the author and be able to nag her for a copy of The It Girl and Me as soon as she was done with the PDF, there haven't been a lot of reviews yet for your book. Usually here, I'd like to use a article about the author, about the work to give people an idea of it. But I've done plenty of that myself. So that should take up that spot. I did find an article that was about you, about the author in Westward which is two words there, not Westward. The magazine of the Alberta Writers Guild, that's in Canada again, folks, they ran a profile of you, and it was headlined, The Unstoppable Laney Giles. I came away thinking that that was a great headline, first of all, for the way you write and for how you propelled this forward when this is not a genre book. This is not, okay, everybody wants a book on wizards right now or superheroes. This is a book you had the passion for and you put that passion in your motor and just let it run you until you now have two great books and more on the way. It made me think, Inspiring people should be part of what history is about and what good writing is about, how people should not let anything stop them if they really want to write that novel. That's how you get here. It's not overnight. No one's going to come and beg you for your idea. It's a lot of hard work. So I wondered, what's it like now when you have those three novels under your belt, two here in the Forgotten Actress series, when readers are coming to you for advice on how to get started and you have folks like the Alberta Writers Guild asking you how you do it. How has that journey changed you? Well, it feels pretty great, to be honest, because <laughs> I've been working towards this for so long. But I think the, the nice thing about it is that I can speak with a little bit of authority now about the process. I've done a couple of presentations, one for my writers group here in town, and then the Edmonton Library last fall participated in Indie Author Day. So I did a presentation there. And my methodologies and what worked for me, what didn't. And I had folks coming up to me after the presentation. I swear there must have been five or six of them just like, oh my God, oh my God, you said exactly what I needed to hear and you had such great information and I want to do what you're doing and you're doing exactly how I want to do it. I don't want cheap covers. I want mine to look really great like yours and I want to do this. And I was just like, I was overwhelmed. I was like, wow, people are responding to this. As a group, I think writers are really fantastic at paying it forward. And I try to do that as much as I can, sharing books or websites or marketing tips, things like that, that helped me. And I think it really is kind of a karmic thing. You know, what you put out into the universe will come back to you. I think that's definitely accurate. 
because I'm starting to see some of the rewards of trying to help people. And I'm hoping that (laughs) as I am beginning to contact brick and mortar bookstores now that some of them are saying, oh, yeah, totally. You know, we'd love to try to carry this. And there are a few more than last time. So that's good. In fact, that's how we met. We met through some common authors and an author, I think, originally put us in touch with each other. We talked about Twitter, where there's a community of people always willing to talk. Something like this, you can really have a platform. That's the key word now when you write query letters that agents and publishers are looking for is, do you have a platform? This is a chance to build it. If you have something good, you can get it out there. You can get it into the bookstores and hopefully people will be taken by it. At least you get to throw your Sunday punch. There's a phrase from before your era. It's a Theodore (laughs) Roosevelt era. You didn't live to see the twenties, but throw your Sunday punch, take your best shot at it. You can do that today and find people that'll help you, which isn't always the case in careers. Sometimes people are terrified about helping somebody else. Yeah, that's true. We talked about locations and The It Girl and Me takes place in Los Angeles. When we spoke about The Forgotten Flapper, you said you were unfamiliar with New York City, not to mention New York City of the era. You are not 120 years old. So one reason I always send you a shot of the theater on 42nd Street that Ollie's ghost haunts in The Forgotten Flapper is, first of all, I want to try to make you want to come to New York City, make you want to visit. So I always take a I'm working on it. <laughs> to help you uh, feel transported there to the New Amsterdam Theater. But you're writing a different city this time and a different challenge. So I wonder how you researched the long gone Hollywood, because unlike the theaters, unlike 42nd Street, so much of old Los Angeles is gone. When I speak to Jennifer Kinchelow about The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, her first novel, she has another one coming out soon. And that's series. It's hard to write LA because earthquakes, development, mudslides, just the (laughs) boom of the city in the last hundred years. uh, Hollywood barely exists at this point, right? It comes from Fort Lee, New Jersey. Speaking of silent films, we have tons of things there as the first birthplace of film. The term cliffhangers that they say comes from hanging there on the Palisades. And this is really the birth of Hollywood here. So how did you meet that challenge of painting a realistic view of the studios? There's this amazing company called Arcadia Publishing, and they create these pictorial books for pretty much any city in the U.S. that you want to look for. And for L.A. and its environs, they have tons of those. They're little teeny skinny books, and they have these gorgeous sepia tone photo covers on them. And I think I have most of them now, but every time I visit, every time I do a search through Amazon, I always find more that I need. I take tours of the studios that are still around, you know, Paramount, Warner Brothers. Also, there's a wonderful tour company called Esoturic. Hi, Kim and Richard. I'll give them a plug. Um, (laughs) They have a series of tours that cover lots of the different areas of the city. You know, they, they have one that's like all east. They have one that's downtown. It's Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, which I took the last time I was there. I'm taking the Hollywood one and one more when I'm going to be there in May. I can't think of the other one that I'm taking, but they get into the really cool stuff like, you know, who killed who at the such and such hotel in 1915, you know, that kind of thing. The stuff that you won't normally hear And if I take one of their tours and they say, this is where the such and such used to be, I have my little notebook with me just taking, scratching out notes the entire tour. And that way I could 
when I can see where the location was, then I go check my Arcadia book when I get home. Okay, here's where it was. Now I can kind of orient myself to where it used to be. Um, I try not to eat at the super duper, you know, ultra modern restaurants. I concentrate on places that are still around like the Pig and Whistle, Miso and Frank, Pacific Dining Car to absorb that sort of atmosphere, the Chateau Marmont I took myself to for a very fancy lunch last time, which was quite lovely. Didn't see any celebrities, though. That's kind of disappointing. Uh, but um, You are one. Yeah. You should have looked in the mirror. You're a successful, <laughs> talented author now. Your mouth to God's ears, as we say down south. <laughs> but it, it helps to kind of at least see the topography and the lay of the land. You know, if I know where the street is, then I can say, okay, can you see the mountains from here? Or can you see the beach from here? It's not the same L.A. it used to be, but you can still kind of get an idea of what's going on there. So it is helpful. Speaking of the Arcadia books, one of the interviews that I did was Galveston's Broadway Cemeteries with Kathleen Shanahan Macca. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the books there. That's one of the Arcadia books. And those are great. I mean, even just to go in a bookstore and flip through one, you'll you'll have to come out with a couple. You see your hometown. If you came from a small town, I know New Jersey is really close, for instance, to New York City, but there's a million towns. There's something like 465 or something boroughs and towns and townships in New Jersey. So each one of them has a little personality and people love to be able to pick those up and really all praise to them for being able to have books that pick up history, whereas people could just go online, you'd think, maybe, and look up those things. Well, not so easy, really. There's a lot of deeply buried history, a lot of things like the newspaper articles you were talking about. So I really love those books, and I, I wish I could have more of their authors on. I guess I should ask them. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have one combined bookshelf down in my office that was Hollywood and my geography books. And I have since had to move all of the, like my geography and my writing craft into another area of the basement to have all of the Hollywood books together because my, my selection of Arcadia books was starting to, it was becoming like a houseplant gone wild. It was starting to outgrow its bookshelf. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So they, they tend to add up. And, you know, when you've got actresses and each one of the actresses is from some, you know, podunk town and you need to order a new Arcadia book just for this one actress, you know, it's, <laughs> It's a little expensive. <laughs> you talk about this relationship here, the similarities, even though they're from different places, Daisy and Clara. There really was a gift for you. It was a rough time for them that they go through this trial and things, which we won't tell too much about because it is so central to the book. But I wonder how that story made you decide, I want to build the It Girl and Me around that because it's very different from your first book and yet it's just as compelling, just in a different way. It's a courtroom drama, I guess, not almost a courtroom drama. Yeah, I thought it would be infinitely more interesting coming from this woman who knew Clara pretty much better than anyone and, and could comment on her behavior. And then when I when I did order Daisy's dad's prison file and it actually had a photo of him in it with his messed up eye, I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This is, we're cooking with gas now. <laughs> That's great. Really, really what you wanted to see. You're probably the only person who's ever looked at some poor disfigured man and said, woohoo, that, that was from a jailhouse fight, right? That was That was true or is that just your book? I don't know how ah, it happened. Okay. I, I had to kind of 
come up with some sort of happy medium to, you know, what happened to the eye. So still might have exploded on him. It could have been any number of romantic things, but that was a really good one that you chose there. Again, I love the mechanics here. Hopefully people listening love that too. But you choose something there where it's not, oh, well, let me just throw in a fight. That's really effective because he's victimized, right? You feel bad for him the way that you draw it there. And then that says something then about Daisy. Daisy's not put upon by uh, the same way that she would be if it was just that the still exploded, which could well be what have happened. But that would have just been very different from the reader, even subconsciously, I think, if I was making that choice as the writer, because that's an illegal activity. It's liquor. It's just an accident. But by having him be targeted and have him come home with losing his vision and not be able to work, you really use that little detail where you're lucky it's fiction and it's okay that it's fiction. You can fictionalize him a little. Yeah. Daisy has gotten a bum rap for so many years and I really wanted to humanize her and I wanted to humanize her family and I wanted people to see that, yes, her dad's a bootlegger. Yes, it's kind of a tradition in that neck of the woods. You've been out running revenue men and that sort of thing, but they were poor. And I wanted that to be a way that he helped to support his family so that you couldn't completely condemn him and you couldn't say he's a bad person or Daisy's a bad person. I wanted to give them some bit of sympathetic, you know, make you feel a little bit bad for them because I don't think they were bad people. I think they were doing what they had to do, you know, in some very tough times. And so there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to the days of the Whiskey Rebellion, using those uh, bottles of liquor as currency, as trade and things like that. And uh, I don't know, from my point of view, I don't think there's any higher calling than delivering liquor to thirsty people in need. <laughs> I don't want to get out of soapbox here, but people need a little bit of a, you know, the water's not terribly good. You need to be able to drink something. And he wasn't, uh, unlike Clara Bow's father, who's a whole different angle of the liquor business or a whole different part of the supply and demand chain, perhaps. But <laughs> we talk about silent film stars like Clara, and the lament is usually that we hear they sadly didn't make the transition to the talkies. Think of Buster Keaton. You know, Think of that role that he has later in The Twilight Zone, if people are unfamiliar with it. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he starts off speaking, and then he goes back in time to the 1880s, so they do the rest of the episode as a silent film and it was kind of a way to give him a job because the guy hadn't worked and wasn't able to make that transition Clara Bow copes with the addition of sound a little bit differently she is able to be in some films that people can watch and hear and maybe enjoy as a talking picture in a way that we're more used to today but I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about how she coped with that addition of sound to her performances not well <laughs> Clara, I don't think, didn't like sound because she was so used to jumping around and being spontaneous and, you know, and perky. And it was hard for her to have to stay in one place where they had a mic stationed in a plant or something like that. And it was hard for her to memorize all those lines, which she'd never had to do before. And she had extreme mic fright, like more than most people back then. And it actually wasn't sound that killed her career, like a lot of people think. She had a Brooklyn accent, yeah, but the studio was trying to help her with that. They gave her a voice coach, and she was even doing some singing and dancing in Paramount on Parade, and I think maybe one other movie, but she had no inner monologue telling her to do something proper and acceptable rather than something outrageous that 
could potentially destroy her career. I get into a few of her scandals in the book, but it got to the point where her personal scandals got so bad that BP Schulberg at Paramount was calling her crisis a day Clara. And basically he had just had it with her. So when most stars had morality clauses in their contracts and she didn't, so she really pushed the envelope back then. (laughs) Sort of a, was the envelope in a way like she was going to decide where everyone was going to go and where the social mores would be and where the lines and boundaries were. She just really just was energy. As I said, the thing about the it girl and me, it's good historical fiction when it makes you really want to get to know this person. You feel like you've met her just through reading the book. And then it's great. We can go and look at film of her and watch some of the documentaries that are out there. And you know, she becomes kind of a, a friend, you know, somebody you're, you're glad you can look at. You're glad you didn't have to live her life, but you can enjoy her craft and her energy. And you, you smile just seeing her on the screen or reading some of this dialogue that you know is pretty close to something. You can almost see her reading your book and saying, oh, that, that's a pretty good one. Look here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one scene in the movie It where she's a shop girl and she manages to nab a date with her boss, who is, you know, the department store owner, like the chain of department store's owner. So he's like a multimillionaire or something. And she comes home. She's got a friend of hers staying with her with the friend's baby. And she comes home and she takes her dress. And she starts cutting the neckline out of it so that it's a bit more risque and, you know, has a bit more decolletage. And she has the friend helping her with fixing the dress. And she wraps the shawl around her shoulders. And just the entire scene is just, it's hilarious. It's her just being Clara and being outrageous. And yes, I'm going to wear this dress that I've (laughs) cut the collar off of so I can be glamorous She's amazing. She's just this awesome actress. And it's so sad that she isn't more you know, well-known these days as she was years ago. Well, Lainey, the final question writes itself, at least for me. First, the tragic, funny Olive Thomas. Now, the it girl, Clara Bow. You've set the bar quite high. So I wonder if you've settled on who the third actress in your Forgotten Actress series will be. And when do you think you get to start on that? This book's barely out. So when do you think you start thinking, well, maybe I'll put Olive on the shelf, so to speak, a little while, if she'll let you? (laughs) At this point, the one that has the most done on it and the most that I'm like I'm probably going to be able to think about releasing this one next is Marie Prevost, who is now known mostly for being uh, kind of the punchline of a Nick Lowe song, which is sad. But I have a notoriously short attention span squirrel, and uh, (laughs) that could change at any moment. (laughs) I'm trying to stay with it so I can finish it, but I have three or four more in mind. So fear not, fans. It's so hard for me to try to stay focused on one. I'll do one for like two or three weeks, and it's like, I don't know if this one's singing to me yet. For me, it's really, really hard to get that first draft sort of, you know, written so I can begin editing it because I don't write like everybody else. I don't really ever come up with an entire finished first draft. It's a constant state of adding on and rearranging and adding on and rearranging and adding on and rearranging. So I kind of would compare it to making a sandwich. You get your bread and then you think about adding some lunch meat, you know, maybe some cheese, maybe some lettuce and then some tomato. And once I can kind of get all of the big stuff in, then I can consider starting to try to really 
fix it and make it pretty and adding all of the slang. That's the mayonnaise. <laughs> and so I'm just liberal with the mayonnaise. And then sometimes I have to go back and say, no, that's too much mayonnaise. I've got to scrape some off. <laughs> you had me so, until you started going on about the mayonnaise. Now I've gone from hungry to – Now uh, you're hungry. I'm sorry. A little, bit gross, <laughs> little bit grossed out, though, by the scraping off. <laughs> so hopefully it will be Marie Prevost, but no promises. I'm going to try to stick with it and see if I can finish it. Okay. Well, Lainey Giles, I will start nagging you then from now, from when the time we air this to <laughs> the next book comes out. But for now, you're happy and proud as you should be to be known as the author of The It Girl and Me. Thank you again for joining me a second time to discuss your novel of this famous actress of her day in the jazz age. She really was great to read about in this format. I love if more historical fiction of this kind was out there. So I hope that you did inspire some great future writers for tomorrow when you go to these events and how great of you to share so much of what you've learned and self-taught. So truly the unstoppable Lainey Giles, I wish you the best of luck with the it girl and me. And I look forward to book three, get to work. Don't take too long. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Again, the book is The It Girl and Me, a novel of Clara Bow. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate through the banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to Amazon.com, we take you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on the time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Lainey Giles for bringing Clara and Daisy back to life for us today and transporting us to the gilded, glamorous, not always easy world of the jazz age. You can follow Lainey on Twitter at Forgotten Flapper. That's the digit four, Gotten Flapper, or at her website, LaneyGiles.com. Let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you will join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're signed up for us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We leave you with Banjoist Supreme Harry Resser's 1927 tribute to Clara Bow, called, What Else? She's Got It. She's got it. And plenty of it, brother, she's got it. I never saw another have so much of such and such. Well, she's really not exquisite, but after all, what is it? Lips and eyes, just like a million others, still what made me fall. Why, it ain't that, and that ain't it. That is that, and it is it, and she's got it. That's all. 